Richard, what was the music you were playing before the show started? That was really good. Uh, it was a group called Mumbles. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it was just a little short instrumental track. I like that. Band called Mumbles. I'm going to look into them. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. This week on the show, our guests include editor, reporter, and freelance writer Alex Vuokulo who will be on to discuss the right and the ability to repair when we talk to him about his Noema magazine article, The Disappearing Art of Maintenance, The Noble But Undervalued Craft of Maintenance Could Help Preserve Modernity's Finest Achievements, from public transit systems to power grids, and serve as a useful framework for addressing climate change and other pressing planetary constraints. Alex is a business reporter for the live-streaming financial news service Chatter News, and he covers the Fed, crypto, and supply chains, among other topics. And later this week, we will be speaking with author, theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, about her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Liz is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and director of the Kairos, or Kairos uh, Center for Religious Rights and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York. But in a few minutes, we will be talking about corruption, greed, and what went horribly wrong in the war in Afghanistan. We speak with journalist Elias Nawandish, who posted an article at The Intercept headlined, I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. Our leaders failed to give Afghan soldiers the food, tools, and respect they needed to defeat a brutal insurgency. Elias is an Afghanistan observatory scholar at New America. Since 2014, he has worked with the Kabul-based Etalat Raz daily newspaper, where he is currently the online chief editor supervising a team of 20 journalists. Previously, he served as news manager, investigative reporter, and text editor for Elliot, uh, Edelot Raz. He's also uh, currently a refugee living in the United States. You can follow Elias on Twitter at Elias underscore Nawandish, N-A-W-A-N-D-I-S-H. Of course, there will be this week's question from hell for for you, our dear listeners, we'll tell you what happened on last week's Patreon podcast exclusively at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll share a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you, and we'll share what you have been telling us. Then more history with this week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday. And we'll hear yet another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. And we'll wrap up this week the way we do every week by announcing the winner of this week's Question from Hell, who will win their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now when you go to thisishell.com and you click on support. But before any and all of that, I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, it's been a while. What's new by you? Oh, not a whole lot. Um, just... Hanging in there. You're looking pretty sexy with your new haircut. A new haircut, yes. I got another pa- pandemic girlfriend haircut. Not that she's my pandemic girlfriend, 
but a haircut from my girlfriend during the pandemic because I'm still too afraid to go to a barbershop and have somebody breathing up in my grill. Do you get your haircut by yourself? Do you no. have somebody do it for I, you? I, I go to a You actually a go local somewhere? shop in the neighborhood. How long did it take uh, you to have the courage to go get your haircut? Oh, it took a, a full year. I was going to sure. say. Yeah. I was going to say. I'm still very nervous about it. Uh, what's going on at the MCA right now? Uh, they're in a bit of changeover. We just finished the Nick Cave uh, show, which was pretty amazing and fantastic. So. I'm really bummed that I missed that. Yeah, it's cool. My weekend was uh, really fantastic, actually. A friend visited from out of town who I had not seen since before the pandemic. We went out for breakfast, which is something... I had not done since before the pandemic, although we tried last weekend, but it took us so long to get out of the house and get out of the office here while we we're cleaning up that the restaurant had stopped serving lunch so or stopped serving uh, breakfast so we could only go get lunch. Then we spent all night uh, this weekend talking about stuff that happened before the pandemic, what we did during the time of the most strict safety protocols and what we've been doing since the peak of the pandemic and what, what we're going to do now that we have experienced what hopefully is the worst part of the pandemic, which made me think how we will and already are framing everything within the timelines of the before, during, and after the pandemic, despite the virus still being very active and deadly. But I, I never uh, realized the, the effect of the pandemic on so much of my socialization until after the fact. It's not like we ever mentioned COVID-19. It's just that for me, the pandemic is kind of always lurking in the background of everything. Every conversation I seem to have, every interaction I seem to have with anybody, the con the pandemic is still just always there. So Richard, aside from the scary specter of death always looming over us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Oh boy, what a lead in. <laughs> <laughs> this week's question from hell is... Despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? <laughs> what the hell is making you happy? I'd like to know, because I would like to be happy, and I'd like to think the exact same thing that you're thinking. The person, or do the exact same thing you're doing, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hal Wins, your choice of whatever, this is how swag you want, that this is how t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive, which features dozens of interviews from this century. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, again, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you who have shown your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover cure, this is hell, and Richard has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is milk thistle and omega-3s, dot, dot, dot. We have suggested both milk thistle and omega-3s, but not in combination. And not like it was described in an article last May posted at the website of the University of Arizona's student newspaper, The Daily Wildcat. <laughs> that sounds like a great paper. The student journalist 
Ellen Nangia reports in her article, Hangover Healings. UA students share their most handy hangover cures as bar scenes ramp up near campus. That Maddie Lamar, a senior studying sociology at the UA, swears by milk thistle, bananas, and sushi. Lamar tells Nangia, my hangover cure is to start with milk thistle before I even start. Now think about that. She's got a time machine. Somehow she is starting with milk thistle before she even starts. Maybe it's uh, just a daily occurrence. Yeah, so maybe it is. Maybe she's got some other issues going on there. Nangia adds, milk thistle is an uncommon remedy, but its active ingredient is Scylla marin. An antioxidant that helps with liver and gallbladder issues. The liver breaks down a majority of the alcohol consumed by the body. Milk, th- milk thistle is a natural treatment with positive effects on the liver to prevent damage and aid in the removal of toxins. Sushi, she, c- she continues, contains omega-3 oils, which have anti-inflammatory properties. When our body metabolizes alcohol, it causes inflammation of the GI tract and joints. These healthy fats will decrease the inflammation. And in most cases, omega-3 oils need consistent use to work efficiently. Nangia concludes, it's just another excuse to eat sushi every day. <laughs> That makes this week's Hangover Cure just another excuse to eat sushi every day. <laughs> if the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. This is hell. We stream live Monday through Wednesday at 10 in the morning Chicago time. And we're podcast shortly after during the week at the same place. This is hell.com. The world broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. On Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR, 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in abbreviated one-hour versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. And on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the the University of Winnipeg. We air twice every week at... Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com and thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at beweretheradio.com. Thanks to Chicago Sound Experiment, Lumpen Radio, Radio Free Moscow, Winnipeg Community Radio, and Beware the Radio for carrying This Is Hell. If you'd like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station or an online station like Beware the Radio, contact your local station or favorite internet radio site and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you want to hear us carried within your community. Coming up, Richard will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, this week's question from hell is, despite climate change as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? And we will tell you uh, what happened during the or behind the paywall during our Patreon podcast last week, and uh, we'll tell you what's coming up, uh, who's going to be on the show later on this week. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell after the war in Afghanistan began. Many Afghans hoped their future would be a future without the cruelty of the Taliban. Last summer, after nearly 20 years, the war came to an end with the U.S. withdrawing from the nation. There is now a a new hope that an upcoming Senate Armed Services Committee Afghanistan War Commission will reveal what really went wrong in Afghanistan. According to those our guests spoke with, 
that fought on the front lines of the war. What happened was greed, corruption, and betrayal by government officials, military officers, and yes, all enabled by the United States. Here to help us have a deeper consideration and understanding of the question, what happened in Afghanistan, we are very happy to have on our show journalist Elias Nawandish, who posted an article at the Internet, or the Intercept, uh, headlined, I watched the Afghanistan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. Welcome to This Is Hell, Elias. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you on the show. I just want to read uh, how your article begins first. You write, on a normal morning, Asadullah Akbari, a colonel in the Afghan National Army, would arrive at his office in Kabul to coordinate online meetings between Afghan officials and their U.S. advisors based in Qatar. After years of fighting across Afghanistan, Akbari had helped set up his country's special forces training program and risen through the ranks. He now worked near the highest levels of the military, side by side with Afghanistan's political leaders. Morning teleconferences with Western partners were part of his daily routine. But as the U.S.-backed Afghan government imploded last summer, a thick cloud of fear descended on the Afghan capital. Rumors spread that Taliban fighters were going house to house, hunting down Afghan military officials. Akbari stayed home, texting anxiously with his military and defense ministry colleagues, all of them trying to make sense of the sudden changes. Then, on August 20, 2021, five days after Kabul fell to the Taliban, Akbari had to a well-known mall with his kids, walking the streets of Kabul, where he'd spent most of his life. He had the distinct feeling that these could be his last days on earth. When his children begged him for candy and ice cream from the vendors on the street, he bought everything they wanted. Akbari knew in his heart that he and his colleagues had been left to their own fate. Many of the senior Afghan officials they'd served under had already made their own arrangements, and they had fled the city. If Akbari did not know that, that you know, leadership, top leadership was going to be evacuating, why did he not know? What does that reveal about the relationship between the nation's senior leaders and the military itself? Why did Akbari simply not know what was going on um, thank you let me let me start from uh, uh, 10 days before the collapse of uh, the afghan government uh, there was a discussion that will the president of afghanistan stands against taliban or will he um, will sign a peace deal because there was a peace talk on doha in, in qatar 10 days uh, the collapse of the government, the president of Afghanistan asked the parliament members in an emergency meeting, and he said that I will stand against Taliban, I will defeat them until I am alive. I will not give up. But suddenly, on, on, on 15, uh, August 15, we saw that he is not in the country. So I, it was a question for me that what was wrong and what went wrong in the country. So then I started uh, interviewing um, the former um, military officials. So I found Akberry. He was the uh, chief of National Command Center in the Ministry of Defense, who was the, uh, the office which was leading the army in the country and a part of his duty was uh, collecting information from across the country that what is going on and then uh, briefing to the president and the Ministry of Defense and the chief of the army. And also he was the the, the, this, uh, the person who was 
uh, connecting the Afghan military uh, to the, the, the new NATO troops and the American troops. So what he's told me is that he said that during when, when the collapse started, it was not suddenly. So first the districts started collapse and then the, the, the province. He told me that during um, the collapse, the president with his national security advisor and some other close friends, they visited uh, continuously the Ministry of Defense and they were asking and, and watching that what is going on in the country. What he told me, it was interesting that he said that the president at the meeting, he was asking people like Akbari to leave the, the room. And he was on, on the room with his advisors and, and they were, and he said that we didn't know what he was telling to the army, what he was planning, and, and there was no clear uh, plan for us. So he was, he said that we were, um, uh, thinking that maybe uh, there will be a plan, a peace deal, and then suddenly he, he said that I was in the office uh, from morning until uh, afternoon, and I because his office was underground. He said that I, I walked uh, out to 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 breathe some fresh air, and then I suddenly saw that the Ministry of Defense and the Chief of the Army is running and escaping the the Ministry of Defense, and then. I, I was scared and, and went back to the office and asked a colleague what is going on. And he said that uh, then uh, we received uh, a news that the president is not in the country and we watched the, uh, the TVs and, and the, the news that he, he is not in the country. So this is what, what, went, um, uh, what happened. So the other thing was that the president's office was not sharing the information I mean, especially the security decision with uh, with those who are in Ministry of Defense, because since uh, 2014, um, 2014, yeah, when the Ashraf Ghani became the president, he centralized the power in President Palace and he assigned his advisor in charge of, of, of leading a different section in the government because the government was shared by uh, his his election competitor, Abdullah Abdullah, and, and the Ministry of Defense was his share. So Ghani was afraid if, if he will be more... Um, involved in Ministry of Defense, then he cannot, uh, may, may, may cannot run the, the, the army. So he um, so I, uh, he put his uh, national security advisor in charge of running security entities. So most of the decisions were made by uh, him and the President Palace. So people like Akbari was just, uh, just uh, the, the person on in the ground who are just applying the, the, and the strategies and the, the plans. So this is the thing that I think uh, because of this thing, Akbari was not aware of that. So as far as peace with the Taliban, do you think that did, did, did people like Akbari, did they explain to you their support for peace with the Taliban or opposition to peace with the Taliban? And do you think that peace with the Taliban could have been sustainable, considering the corrupt amount of corruption that is in was in the Afghan government? It, what do you think is the the was the possibility for peace with the Taliban? So the, he, here is two two different things. So for the peace, not only Akbari, all the Afghan citizens they were very happy that if if there would be a peace, so everybody wanted peace because. They suffered during four decades of war in the country, so the peace was very welcomed by everybody. But what what happened in the country was wrong. 
So when the U.S. Um, administration started negotiation with Taliban, they excluded the Afghan government. So that was the first mistake, because you are going to sign a peace deal with the, uh, the Taliban, uh, the Taliban who are fighting with the government, and you are not uh, giving chance for the government to to be part of this negotiation. So this was the first mistake, and the second. Uh, the corruption was the biggest challenge for the government. It is not related to peace. So the, 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 the corruption was very viral in the government. So at day by day, at, uh, I mean, the people was watching that there is a lot of corruption in the government. The people who are connected to the president, they are involved in corruption cases. So the, there was a question in, in Afghan thought in, as, as a journalist, I was monitoring in social media that the people were saying that if the peace come and and the outcome of this peace is a new government, that would be ideal because this government is very corrupt and this government is, is playing not very good. Like, um, I mean, they were abusing the law, they were abusing the national budget. So um, they, they applied some policies which was not good for the people. Um, so, so there was uh, the question that if the peace comes, then uh, uh, the people were very happy that the new government, uh, I mean, the outcome of peace, if there will be a new government, that would be ideal because the people were tired of, of, the, of the corruption in the government. As an example, there was a very transparent uh, exam for the for the university, which we we name it as Concor. When when the students were uh, finishing the high school, then by passing this uh, exam, they were able to enter the uh, the, the uh, universities. So Ghani's administration, he he changed that Concor uh, exam like this. That okay, let's share this according to the province. For example, if a province uh, has 100 students, he should send like two or three other person without, regardless of, of the number in, in the concrete exam to like to engineering faculty, to computer science or to medical. So according to the system, it was that those who had top number, those were qualified for top universities. But Rani changed, Rani's administration changed that and that system. So this was a big corruption because he gave it according to chance. For example, if you're from a province and you don't have like uh, 300 number, you're not qualified for the medical university, but because you are from that province, so it is your share to, to go to the that uh, faculty. The other, there was a lot of um, corruption in hiring people in in the uh, in the government. So the the army, the procurement process was a, a crap process. So these were the challenge that they, day by day. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, the people were not very happy for this government. So as another example, in two thousand fourteen election, millions of Afghans voted for the election. In 2018, for the parliamentary election, there was only six or, or less, uh, around six million people. But in 2019, which was the president election, there was uh, only two million votes. So the president of Afghanistan had less than one uh, million votes. It was because a very clear impact of corruption because the people had no trust on the election uh, commission and the process because uh, they, they experienced that how 
the election uh, commission and process was uh, was corrupt. And that, as you're pointing out, it was very, very obvious to everybody. That's why that they were voting. They weren't voting for the president because it was really obvious. It was very obvious to everyone that corruption was going on. So, oh yes, when, when did this corruption start? At, at, the, at the beginning of the new Afghan government, following the U.S.-led uh, invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, was there honest government and leadership? And then. At some point, they became corrupt, and if so, when did they become corrupt? Was there hope for a government that would not be corrupt, and then that hope was squashed? So the corruption started uh, with the new government after two thousand one. It was not just like we. I, I'm not telling that it was just started with Ashraf Ghani's administration. It was in the during Karzai's time. Uh, so, but but when Ghani took power, he centralized the power in everything and the decision making in the president palace. So then the corruption is centralized in the president palace. Uh, he designed the national procurement um, authority, which was in charge of processing all the procurement across the government. So every entity was responsible to send their uh, procurement documents to this office and this this office was reviewing and approving that and so they, there was another uh, office uh, a council was called uh, national procurement um, council which Rani was the, the leading that council so the final decision was with that council so this at some point i covered many many um, procurement contracts that uh, those were approved by uh, by this council, and Rani was assigned uh, uh, the final um, approval that was cracked. So um, the the national international community and the donors they already knew that there is corruption, but I don't know why they 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 didn't uh, stop the corruption or they didn't uh, uh, I mean um, work it for accountability in the Afghan government. As an example, uh, in the Ministry of Defense, a, a big fund uh, provided by Sistica, I mean, the, 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 uh, the American uh, administration, I think. So they funded a, a project that was to repair all the generators for the uh, Ministry of Defense and the National Army. So that procurement was very corrupt. As an example, a generator had, for example, $1,000, the new generator, the price was $1,000, but the contractor uh, repaired that, that generator in $2,000. So that was a double uh, charge. So everybody in the government knew that contract, the president knew that contract, and, and nobody was stopping. Even I, I'm sure even the, 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 the donors know that, the, 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 how um, those contracts were, were correct, but they, but they didn't stop that. So the Afghan government uh, was acting with the corruption uh, like a kind of, we can say it is condition-based. When it was uh, an international summit regarding Afghanistan or a donor meeting, so they were telling that, yes, we are very transparent. Here is the document. He, we approved this law or we designed this system. But in action, there was nothing. Uh, so they, um, the Afghan government committed to the international community that they will design the anti-corruption commission to 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 lead all the uh, anti-corruption activities in the government. But until the end of day, uh, the government didn't uh, um, um, uh, create that commission. And just before uh, a summit in London, 
uh, they designed it. It was just a, a month ago. So it was to, just to show the donors that yes, here is our commitment that we, we did. But in action, there was nothing. You write that, like everyone, I watched in horror as my Attila Traz colleagues at the newspaper where you worked, still in Kabul, were beaten by the Taliban for the crime of covering a protest. How did the former leadership prior to the Taliban, how did the Ghani administration treat journalists like yourself? When they were in power, were they accommodating or were they adversarial? Were they supportive or were they skeptical? Um, publicly, they were telling that we are supporting free media in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, they invited me so because um, empowering uh, free media and access to information was one of the big commitment of Afghan government to the international community. So they were not able to 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 prevent or to to bother the um, investigative journalist. But the challenge was that they were not giving the information uh, to the journalist. They were hiding the the information. As an example, the all entities were responsible to publish every year the whole report of the procurement and their activities on their website according to access to information law which was the best law in the paper but a few uh, entities were uh, were ready to publish their report at the end of year so or sometimes they were uh, they were publishing those activities or reports or information that was not uh, important were just like um, did like for example did the, the ministry visited this place the ministry had this uh, meeting with these people or we we approved this project we apply uh, we uh, we designed this project which was very uh, common but the, the 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 information which was wanted by the um journalist so they were not providing i experienced uh, i asked many uh, documents from the government which they denied and, and for months uh, 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 even one year I followed up and I followed it why you're not giving them at the, at the end of the day tell me that I mean off the record that we are the government we, can, we are not giving see I was telling them that this access to information law and the media law gives the, um, uh, this right to me to ask you this information and you have to give it to me. And they were saying that, yes, the law says, but I'm not telling you, uh, giving you whatever you can do, do it. So these were the, um, the things. Um, the other thing was that the president of Afghanistan, he was attacking on free media. He was not good support. In word, in publicly, for example, when he was visiting European country or um, or, or America, he was telling to the media that, yes, here is the uh, big amount of media in Afghanistan. I'm supporting them. But in the action, he was not he was not ready even to interview with the, with the Afghan media. He, during the seven years of his um, administration, he only did a few interview, which was some uh, some kind of condition based. For example, he did one interview with Tolo News, which is the biggest uh, channel in Afghanistan. And when the, the journalist asked some question, he got angry and said that it was, we, we didn't agree on this question. So we agreed that I'm uh, talking about like a specific point. 
So um, this was the the, um, the behavior of of Ghani's administration with with the media, or uh, he once he publicly announced that from media the winds is coming up. Uh, he was not uh, supporting investigative journalists. He was not uh, supporting investigative reporters. So. Uh, many, many journalists published uh, the corruption cases um, uh, as, a, as in their uh, media, but the government didn't follow up. Um, just another example, one of the uh, anti-corruption commission staff, it was a high uh, position. Uh, recently, he published a seven uh, episode of uh, an article in Idlatros and says that how the uh, corruption activity was in, in the government. He said to me that uh, when you published the contract of Ministry of Defense, uh, so it was our responsibility to follow up that uh, that report and the documents that what is uh, in this uh, contract. And he said that finally, uh, some people in the government threatened me that stop following this uh, case. And I told him that it's my responsibility as part of uh, the, this commission and this uh, office that we are responsible to to follow the corruption cases and say that okay if you if you want to risk so do it but but it is better to stop so this was the the, the, the behavior of Afghani government you we are speaking with journalist Eliash Nawandish posted an article at the Intercept headlined I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed you can follow Elias on Twitter at Elias underscore Nowandish. Elias, you also ask about, uh, you ask the question, how could the gains of the last 20 years have evaporated so quickly? And you add this remains an agonizing question for both Afghans and Americans. In April, as you were pointing out, the Senate Armed Services Committee announced the creation of an Afghanistan War Commission aimed at establishing why the U.S.-backed government, Afghan government, and its security forces dissolved so spectacularly. The commission plans to, quote, uh, co- a, uh, provide a comprehensive review of key decisions related to U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan and to deliver a final report to Congress within three years, around the time President Joe Biden will complete his term in office. Do you think this will be a thoughtful and well-considered investigation or a whitewashing of the U.S. role in Afghanistan? What do you think this report will be? Is it too early to tell and impossible to judge to say, you know, compared to past Armed Services Committee reports and commissions? Is it, it, do we have any sense of how forthright and how honest and how transparent this will be? Um. I I cannot tell now that what will be the uh, the outcome of this investigation, but uh, but there was some uh, there was some um, uh, uh, thought. So there was two mistakes at the beginning. The first, the uh, the American when when they designed the Afghan National Army. So they didn't consider the Afghanistan uh, reality. So the, the the geography, the the structure of the country. So that the army was not designed based on what Afghanistan needed. So uh, the second thing, uh, um, they kind of they empowered those people who were not qualified in the army. So I think this investigation should go fo- uh, follow those mistakes that what was wrong in the country. 
and why the uh, investment of the American uh, was uh, was wasted in an Afghan National Army. So the Americans uh, paid a lot. They 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 the Afghan American troops died in, in Afghanistan and in Jordan in the country and also. The Afghan National Army paid a lot of cost for that. So thousands of Afghan uh, army members were killed and injured in the, in the country. So um, I think they should go deep on those uh, things that what went wrong and who were in charge of, of those mistakes. And the second thing is that they should go uh, and follow those Afghan officials who are in charge of decision making and involved in in in, uh, in army. So many Afghan generals they they have uh, property in 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 UAE in Turkey and other things. So this were um, from where they they find this money from salary? No, absolutely. So they were involved with the, uh, they they in corruption. So the this this the money were paid by the Americans and the NATO. Uh, members countries to the afghan army and those people uh, uh made the corruption so yeah so it was not a lack of resources from nato it was not a lack of resources from the united states it was was it the wrong resources and if the united states and nato was was were, if they were providing the wrong resources in order to fight the taliban insurgency to you what explains why the wrong things had been sent to Afghanistan? No, there was not the lack of um, equipment or, or support. There was a lot, but uh, but the way which is used was wrong. For example, um, the Ministry of Defense had a, 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 an office. It was for like a kind of um, public awareness, something. <clears throat> That uh, office had a lot, millions of, of budget each year. So they were responsible to inform the people and to, to contact with the people, to, to, like to, uh, to publish a kind of propaganda for, for the government, for the army. But this was the active, was the most uh, silent office in the Ministry of Defense. So just there was a spokesperson who was briefing sometimes in the media. Like in Afghanistan, is a cultural society, so the people are very connected through the culture. So they should work through this. They should spend those money and this budget for for uh, informing people um, regarding uh, army activities. That why the army is good. In some part of the country, the people were thinking that the army is the enemy because the Taliban had this chance to tell their narrative to those people that see this are American backs people and they are the popular they are they are the enemy of you or they are enemy of the Afghan but the ministry of defense in Afghanistan were not able to to use those budget to use those equipment and tell the narrative to the people that no we are not a puppet we are the the son of these people we are your son we are from your brother you are from sister so so this was the the things the other thing was that they misused from 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 uh, the I mean the Afghan official misused from the the funds and the equipment which we, the US and NATO uh, provided for Afghanistan as as an example in. 2018, when the uh, uh, election parliament election was ongoing in the country, so Ghani ordered it to his national security advisor that uh, 
to appoint from military uh, officers to the police. It was a wrong decision. So the the Americans, they trained the officials, uh, the army members, uh, the military officers, but Rennie was using those officers in the police, which was wrong to me. Why, why he did this? There was, on the paper, he was telling that I'm going to reform the army and the police. I'm going to uh, empower the police uh, because the commanders from the army are experienced in war. But behind this, there was another reason. He was trying to control uh, uh, the election for himself, for for his team, and for 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 a special a specific purpose. So the the donors already know that. So so the misuse of those equipment and and, and investment uh, was uh, was a challenge. So there was no lack of like the Afghan uh, army had enough weapon, they had enough uh, budget, but the Afghan officials misuse that in the paper the army had uh, every day like which table fruit meat a very very good food but in in the ground if you could see i visited once in, in ghazni province and i watched that the, the army member had only rice with water and and, and and bread there was no like gas there was no which table there was no fruit so on the paper everything was good but there was a fund for that but but on the ground the army and the the soldiers were not receiving uh, those things. You mentioned how they're very much con- uh, connected to the culture of Afghanistan. In Iraq, the United States, at one point when the war was not going well, uh, the common story you would hear in the news would be that the reason that we are losing the war in Iraq or the war in Iraq is not going as well as it should well, it's because of the locals and local culture in Iraq. It was they would claim that there had been Sunni and Shia infighting for millennia, which is not historically accurate. In Afghanistan, you talk about how there was a prioritization of loyalty over ability. So was a culture of corruption new for Afghan governance? Uh- so Iraq is different than Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, um, there are uh, Afghanistan is a diversity country. So for the first time when the new government started in after 2001, so there was an agreement in Bonn that, for example, this ethnicity group should have this uh, percentage of chance in the government or this. But at the same time, the army was designed like that. So the first time in the first years and the, the like in before um, uh, 2014, the army was very uh, good in action because they just, there was uh, enough support from from NATO and Americans and at the same time from the government. So there was everybody could see their image on the army. But when Rani took power, he started a kind of um, uh, uh, removing other ethnicity groups from 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 the army and then appointed his. Uh, his people to the army from one ethnicity group, which was belonged to the president. And at the same time, uh, so he used the Afghan National Army against uh, uh, some people in the country who are not Taliban, who are not terrorist group, but they were against Taliban. For example, there was a local commander. He was not a good, com- uh, f- I mean, uh, from the government side, but from for the people, he was a good supporter for the people in North Afghanistan. He was an Uzbek commander and he was fighting with Taliban. 
and the Afghan government ordered the army to go and arrest him, and they tortured that commander. In, 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 in central Afghanistan, there was a local commander against uh, Taliban who was he was just securing the, the highway and the, the road for the people who can travel safely. Then the government used the army against them. So then this uh, ethnicity group thought that, okay, this army is not a national army. This is not for us. Why we should support this army when, when the army is killing our, our commander who, who is making... Um, uh, our life secure, uh, but at the same time, when there was army was surrounded by Taliban, so there was not uh, an order to that the army can uh, attack on Taliban or or, or they can um, uh, use like heavy weapons against them. So these were the things. And at the same time, uh, Afghanistan uh, in some part of the country is a very um, a closed culture that the people think that. Everybody who come out of Afghanistan is a kind of enemy. So this is their thought in from past to now. It was the government responsibility to inform those people and, uh, and give this awareness that this government is from Europe and this is met by Afghans. It is because of your word or this army is your son. And, and they were not paying attention to the mosque. So the mosque are a very key uh, place in Afghanistan because the people are praying there, gathering there. So, but Taliban had enough talent to use the mosque against the government and, 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 and spread their thoughts and, and propaganda. And in some part of the country, the mosque leader, they were publicly telling that this government is puppet or this government is an uh, uh, enemy, but the government was not enough talent to, to, to use from the resource for the fans, which had to, to, um, uh, to inform those people um, that, um, uh, that this army is good and this uh, government is good. So this were the, 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 the challenge. And the, the government ignored the diversity of Afghanistan. Uh, in the protest, there was some civil protest uh, against the government and the people that were asking for justice, for security. You know, the protester offered a bunch of flour for the army and they were uh, giving this message to the, 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 the government that we are, uh, the, it's a peaceful protest and we respect our, 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 uh, our uh, military and our uh, police uh, and security forces. And we are with giving a bunch of flour, a rose flour, we are, telling them that we thank you because of your work to, to make the country secure. But then the government and the government, the, the, the commanders ordered those troops to go and, and, and kill those people. And they killed uh, the protester in, in, in close to the president place. So this, this things which happened uh, uh, caused that at the end of the, uh, the people were thinking, I mean, the people were not, um, thinking that the army should go out. So everybody was supportive for the army because the people knew, already knew that the army is the best uh, entity in the country. So the corruption was in, in all the government, but in, 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 not in, in, in the army members, it was an administrative. So, but the, the way that the government's leaders play with the army, uh, put the army in this position that then the people were asking themselves that why I should support this government when the government 
is using this army against me or against uh, uh, my commander and the, the society member. And you write that Akbari and had spent decades at war, lost many friends, suffered scars that he will carry for the rest of his life. Looking at Afghanistan today, he cannot escape the feeling that it was all for nothing. Did Akbari or did even you, uh, did you ever have a sense that the war was not only winnable, but at some point during the insurgency that you or he believed the Taliban was on the verge of collapse, on the verge of defeat. Was there a moment when you or Akbari saw this war as something that could be won? There was, yes. Uh, in, in my personal comment, yes, there was a chance to win the war against Taliban, but the way how the government uh, lead um, uh, the war was wrong. As an example, everybody was aware that Taliban are a terrorist group, so they are killing people, they are target, um, I mean, bombing, they are destroying the, uh, the highways, the, uh, the buildings. But the former president Karzai, he was telling publicly that Taliban are my brother. He asked the uh, American army to stop bombing Afghan houses. So this was wrong. Yes, there were some mistakes, maybe, that the, 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 um, uh, the former troops, at the same time, the Afghan troops were, were, uh, did some mistakes during the operation uh, in war zone. But the way how the government leader uh, was thinking was wrong. And then Ashraf Ghani did the same mistake. He, he said that Taliban are the political opposition, which everybody was telling that the Taliban are terrorists, but he was telling that Taliban are political opposition. So they didn't have a plan to use the army and the equipment to how can we defeat the Taliban. So they was, I was interviewing many, many um, officials after the collapse that what was your plan and to defeat Taliban or what was the government plan to uh, to control the insurgency in the country? And they were telling that nothing. One of the um, my sources, he told me that if you search the old government, you cannot find a paper, uh, a written plan that this is the security plan for the Afghan government. It was always just on word uh, that they were telling that we will do this. One one other mystic which might be very interesting for American audience. The security operation is some, something classified that until you are not attacking in somewhere, you're not giving information. But in Afghanistan, it was uh, different. So the Taliban were attacking somewhere, and then the government uh, commanders, especially the army commanders, they were telling that, hey, this is our plan. We are going from this way. We are going to do to use these weapons against them. So before attacking, before doing something, they were announcing that this is our plan. Then when they were in the area, the Taliban were not there because they already knew that what is the government plan. They were posting their uh, plan on. Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, when they were starting moving to attack the Taliban, they were posting on on Facebook that here is this number of troops started to go to, to, to kill the Taliban. 
But when the army was in the aerial, so there was no Taliban because they already know that this. So this were uh, the thing there was uh, the mistakes, and uh, the government had no, uh, uh, I mean, written or or, or organized plan that how can they defeat the insurgency. So the other thing was the way how they uh, they used the uh, the uh, I mean the the government resources. There was a report uh, uh, in the past that how the Taliban restarted their uh, insurgency in Kandahar. The, in Kandahar. So in, in Pashtun society in Afghanistan, there are other, inside the Pashtun ethnicity group, there are some uh, small tribals, and they're very connected to uh, each other. In Kandahar province, uh, a tribal was unhappy so the way the the right way was that the government can talk with them and make them happy that why you are not uh, like helpful for the government. In instead, the Karzai he appointed a commander of police from another tribal which was against this tribal, and then he he went there and he killed some uh, of of this tribal member, and then that tribal member stand against government and say that, okay, now you're killing me, then I'm supporting Taliban. And they switched to Taliban. And then, so the Taliban were using this movement against against uh, uh, the government. And, but the government was not enough talent to, to, to use those chances to, to take the chance from Taliban and to, to, to remove them from the society or to cut their access to the society. You also point out that the U.S. had built an Afghan security infrastructure that was almost entirely dependent on foreign military and contractor support for its own maintenance and logistics. When the U.S. withdrawal began, Afghan soldiers found that they were suddenly unable to call in airstrikes or receive resupply by air, although their U.S.-led combat training had included these as critical components of their style of fighting. So in your opinion, Elias, why make the Afghan uh, security infrastructure thoroughly dependent on the United States? Because here in the U.S., we were being told we were giving the Afghan government the ability to defend itself. We were training the Afghan army to defend itself without the help of the United States and not keep them forever dependent on the U.S., so how much was that corruption that we've been talking about today, how much was that fueled by the Afghan military's dependency on the U.S. military and its equipment? Uh, so the way that the Afghan troops were designed was like to, I mean, the mentality of the Afghan army, the soldier was that, okay, when I am going to fight on the ground, there will be an air support. Uh, so because it was, they trained like this, that so, I mean, the, the, the U.S. Army or the NATO troops, they trained the Afghan troops like according to their system, that the, the way that how they are uh, operating. So, but in Afghanistan, it was not possible because the geography is different, the, 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 um, the situation was different. So when the army was in operation, so they were thinking that, okay, now the next step is if I'm going to forward, then the air support will be with me. Or the 
the the contractors who are in charge of of uh, uh, like providing food or uh, fuel or other things for the, the the army members. So when there was not a very designed and conditioned vest, like in some part of the country, there are like, like we can say that it's a six month winter because when the fall starts, so the weather is enough cold that uh, and then during the six three month of of, of winter, so they were designing the kind of system that, for example, at the end of the fossil year, which was in, um, in, in uh, at the beginning of winter, we will provide everything for the army and the troops, and we will pass the national budget, so then we can sign the contract. But at, at, the, at that time, there, there was, all the way was closed, then they were, you were not able to, to provide foods or supplement for, for the army. So this, this, this structure that they designed was wrong. And every time there was, when the army was surrounded, we received a call, many calls, and they were posting videos sometimes on social media that we are surrounded by the enemy. We have enough weapon. We don't have uh, air support. If there will be air support, we can defeat Taliban. Or uh, every commander who are in war zone, they were just asking for air support. When the US left Afghanistan and they, they cut the air support, so the government, the Afghan National Army was mentality uh, defeated because they thought that, okay, now nobody is helping me and nobody is supporting me. And when they pulled out the contractors, so they lost the contractors and there was no one to repair the equipments. They were not repaired to the vehicles, the, the, the helicopters. So they didn't design uh, uh, a structure that if there were, won't be Americans or NATO or any other supporters, how Afghan government and Afghan army can, uh, can, uh, can, can work. So when they left Afghanistan, there was a, a huge gap and, 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 and in a very short time, it was not uh, uh, possible to, to fill this gap. And as you point out, a lot of people, especially here in the US and in other NATO countries in the West, have said that one of the reasons that the Afghanistan government fell is because the Afghan military refused to fight anymore, that it was the fault of the Afghan military, and the people were fighting on the ground, and nobody else, or at least not, you know, maybe the corrupt government as well, but a lot of blame was pointed towards the people who were fighting on the front lines. And you write how Akbari wanted to continue fighting, and a lot there was this big disconnect between the people who are fighting on the front lines and the leadership of military officers. What would you say to someone here in the United States who says, who says that the, the reason that the Afghanistan government fell is because the Afghanistan army quit fighting, that that's the real reason for the fall of Afghanistan? Uh, it is not the, I mean, generally, if you're talking the army and <clears throat> the troops, there are thousands of people, so they were not. It was not domestic. I'm not blaming them. I'm pointing out that the leader, those who are leading these troops, uh, were uh, in charge of this mistake and this collapse. So when you see that the commander is keeping first, then the soldiers they don't have anybody who can lead them, who can give them order. Then they cannot organize themselves. 
So when, when the, the Ministry of Defense are, are leaving the country, when the, the chief of staff is not in the country, when the president, which is the, the leader of the all troops, according to Afghanistan law, he was the, the chief of, of um, all the troops. So when, when he escaped the country, then how the, the normal soldier can think about the war? So the, the, it, it's the right question that asks that why the Afghan army didn't fight. As in my point, the question is very simple. The first thing was corruption, then the, so the peace deal, and then there was no plan from the government side that, okay, when the US leave the country, well, the NATO leave the country, they will leave the country maybe 100 years uh, after 100 years. They're not here forever. So the Afghan government was responsible to prepare themselves, the, the, the government, the troops, for this condition that when the Americans leave the country, where the NATO leave the country, then what will be the next step? So how can I, I, I handle by myself? So Ashraf Ghani appointed some commanders in recent years who were not experienced, who were not familiar with the army, who were not familiar with the how to, even how to design a plan for war. But just because they were connected to him according to ethnicity or the loyalty, so they were in charge of the army. As an example, I was interviewing one of the generals. He told me that in 2018, the Afghan government uh, reformed the army. So they adjusted the Af um, the uh, officers inherent law, which was uh, uh, a law who was organizing the army and the, uh, the Afghan National Army. He said that the only thing we did was that we decreased the age of retirement for generals and colonels. He told me that when I was telling the, uh, uh, the government that this is the wrong policy, we don't have enough uh, uh, experienced general and colonels that if we remove them, then we cannot find another person instead of them. They say that, no, we are doing this. When the new apply, uh, the law applied, suddenly the army was empty of experienced general and colonel. So the government promoted the new soldiers as a general, as a colonel. So they were not experienced. So this was the mistake. So the, um, the, the, the collapse or started from that point. And then you know that the national security advisor of the president, he was in charge of all the entity, uh, security entities in the country. He was leading them. He was, even he was not familiar with the, with the security uh, terminology. He was a person uh, who had a, a, a degree in, in computer science. His only government work was he was the ambassador of Afghanistan in, in Washington, D.C., but he was in charge of all the security troops. You know that this kind of people were in charge of, of leading the army. The army itself was not, uh, uh, not something that we can say that, they, that they, they were not ready to fight. They fight in, in two decades and they suffered a lot. They defeated, they paid a lot. They, they died, they, they got injured. But the way how the, the leader of the army uh, was leading them 
was 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 that 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 the reason of the collapse so and and when the peace talks started the taliban were spreading this news that okay when uh when we signed the peace deal then so when we, we we signed the peace deal with the taliban then the government is nothing for us but the government was not able to inform enough the army that okay when the american are leaving so we are here so this is our country this is our responsibility we should do that so these were the, the the mistakes these were the things and the commanders and the generals the the leaders of the army they were just thinking about how to collect money for themselves how to buy a house how to buy a uh, I mean, I, I mean, luxury cars. They will not uh, care about what is suffering the army members. As one example, when, according to Afghanistan law, when a soldier dies in a battlefield, the government is responsible to to support his family, his wife, his children. You know, when the, uh, there was a lot of report that the commanders, that the Ministry of Defense authorities, they asked for sexual. Uh, abuse from the wife of a dead soldier. There was a crime. There was a very a big crime, but it happened in Afghanistan, unfortunately. So when the army, uh, I mean, the soldier was uh, was hearing this type of story, they were demoralized because they were thinking that if, if one day I will die, then the way that the government will treat with my family is like this. Why should I fight for this government? Why should I, I, I put my life in danger? So this was the mistake in the, in, the, in, in, in recent years that, that the finally lead the, and the, the army to the collapse. One last question for you, Elias. We have been speaking with journalist Elias Nalandish, who posted an article at The Intercept headlined, I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. Elias, for each and every one of our guests, Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask, or you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. Akbari tells you, if I say that Afghanistan was a country during the Ashraf Ghani government, it would not be fair. Afghanistan was like a joint stock business company in that every partner exercised as much authority as their share. The United States said when the beginning of the invasion occupation in the war in Afghanistan and along with their NATO allies that what they were bringing to Afghanistan was democracy. But the outcome seems to have been, as uh, your friend Akbari was telling you, that it was more like not a democracy, but a joint stock business company. What have you learned about a government being run like a business. Should governments be run like a business? And using the example of Afghanistan, why not? Uh, so when the when the U.S. in the international community came to Afghanistan and the new chapter started for the Afghans, everybody had a big hope that we will have a better country, a better government. But then election after election was corrupt and fraud after the fraud. The international community know that, but they ignore it. So this was the mistake. So they, they, they should stop the fraud in the country and stop those who are involved within these things. But, but unfortunately, they ignore it. As an example, in 2014, there was above 2 million fraud votes and most of the fraud vote for Ashraf Ghani. 
and when the election commission announced the result, so they was not acceptable for other part of the country. I mean, the the uh, the um, one of the other candidate. So they start resisting and say that this is fraud and this. But you know, the international the the best way was to cancel the election and repeat it again. But then the international community and especially the America, they help it to them to make a joint government and it was national united government so the uh, the former um, state department uh, john kerry he he was uh, uh, in afghanistan and with the help of him so the national united government established in the country so then the the democracy died on that day when when american international community and the candidates and the afghan political leader they didn't respect the democracy and the democratic uh, process. So the democracy, I mean, in, in some point we can say that so democracy died on that day. Then every leader in the government, they were just busy with to how to control more the entities and how to appoint their people in the government. So they were not thinking that how can they empower the government and democracy in the country. And in um, in 2018, when the parliament election held, the former uh, vice president, he was then the, the uh, vice president for Ashraf Ghani Amrullah Saleh, he announced that the president advisor is making parliament member representative. There was a, a fraud. There was a lot of fraud. A person who had no vote, but not, he was representative in parliament, with the help of the government. So the, the international community, the donors already know that, but they didn't stop them, they ignore them, and then they support these people. So this is what Akbari says, that this was a, as a kind of company. Yes, it was a kind of company, because when you, you make a government, this, this uh, X have this percentage of chance, and Y has this uh, X percent of chance in the government, this entity belongs to the X and this entity belongs to Y. This is a company. This is not a government. That is really fascinating. Uh, and I cannot thank you enough, Elias, for being on today's show. Again, journal journalist Elias Nawandish. He posted an article at The Intercept headlined, I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. He is an Afghanistan observatory scholar at New America. And you can follow Elias on Twitter at Elias underscore Nawandish. Elias, thank you so much for being on our show and offering your perspective, your eyewitness perspective as to what happened with the fall of Afghanistan. And we will be following this commission uh, by the U.S. Arms, uh, U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee to follow up and finding out uh, about exactly what they believe, at least what they learned from the commission. Thank you so much, Elias. I really appreciate it. And I will be emailing you in the future to have you back on the show because this has been very, very, very informative. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, take care. Thank you. Bye. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If you learned or gained a new view or perspective on the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban in the summer of 2021 and the death of democracy in Afghanistan as enabled by the United States, the West, and the International Com Committee or Community, uh, if you learned any of that all kind of stuff from our guest, Elias Nowandish, 
please show your support for This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. When you become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, but you also get access to over 200 past It's over 300, actually. I just looked it up. Over 300 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. And if you think about it, we do basically like 48 weeks of shows a year. We do four hours of shows every week. That's almost 200 hours of content every week. But online right now, if you uh, subscribe at our Patreon uh, site patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on patreon you get over 350 hours so it's like another two almost two years of this is hell just by subscribing to patreon.com slash this is hell on last week's patreon podcast following conversations on the show about uh, communities that once depended upon logging now so desperate they've turned to poaching trees as well as a talk where abolishing the family was proposed. After all, as you, our guest reminded us, family is where rape, murder, and many other forms of abuse happen most. And a conversation about the current call for expanded police surveillance of white supremacists being just another expansion of the police state that can be turned on any of us whenever the political winds change. After all of that, I decided I'd, I'd take a crack at re-examining what community family, love, happiness, safety, freedom, and even fun, mean. I'm telling you, this show can be an emotional train wreck for me, and the outcome of last week's train wreck on the show was my monologue during our Patreon podcast. Also on Patreon, back in September of 2007, a bit over 15 years ago, we spoke with writer and author Stan Cox, who was on the show to talk about his then-just-published article, Big Houses Are Not Green, America's McMansion Problem. Stan is a plant breeder at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. He's the author of Losing Our Cool, Uncomfortable Truths About Our Air-Conditioned World and Finding New Ways to Get Through the Summer. With his son, Paul Cox, he is a co-author of How the World Breaks, Life in Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia. In other words, Stan's relationship with nature through plant breeding has made him acutely aware of many of our environmental challenges of the last few decades challenges that are leading to and causing right now climate change but you can only hear all of that by subscribing to this is hell on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when you do subscribe to this is hell on patreon you get immediate access to all our patreon podcasts and that special bonus code word that i was telling you about richard please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far if they are at all as i just i posted this just before today's show Despite climate change, as well as all the fear, hatred, violence, and disease that permeate our world today, what currently makes you happy? Do we have some answers? We have. Oh, my God. We have three. All right. Um, I'm surprised. Our, <laughs> our, you may not be surprised by the answer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, <laughs> Pete, our, Pete, our PD says... Drugs. All right. All right. I thought for sure he was going to say your mom, but that's okay. SL 
S answers having already read the gobsmackingly beautiful Homebound by Vanessa A.B. before its release tomorrow, 11 October. No, well, we'll have to look into that book. See what it's glorious, book. like the work of Leo Tolstoy, Tolstoy, Franz Kafka, Rob Wallace, or Matt Sedillo. Oh, wow. So it sounds like... Hashtag guest suggestions. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Appreciate it, asshole. And what's the last one we have for it so far? From our friend Fabio AJ. His answer is, my podcast app downloading a new episode of This Is Hell. Oh, that's what makes you happy. Well, I guess our show is totally failing in its mission there. <laughs> <laughs> the person with our favorite answer again to this week's Question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. And check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's Question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us or you can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week. Richard, who is coming up as our next couple of guests here on This Is Hell? Oh, boy, I've not prepared for that. Uh-oh. Well, I can yeah, look at that second name of the first guest, and then you can start up from oh, there. Oh, here we go. Um, you want to be Alex? Yes. He's for tomorrow? Yes. Alex... How do you pronounce his last name? Vuokolo, I guess. Vuokolo. Vuokolo. Vuosholo. Maybe. Maybe. Who he will speak with us tomorrow about his Nomi magazine article, The Disappearing of The Disappearing Art of Maintenance. The noble but undervalued craft of maintenance could help preserve modernity's finest achievements. From public transport transit systems to power grids and serve as a useful framework for addressing climate change and other pressing planetary constraints. I'm just laughing because of uh, it, it seems like this would be something that was more of a homeowner type situation <laughs> and public transit. And there was, uh, there I, I think go. they have their own uh, maintenance team. <laughs> Infrastructure and <laughs> yes. power grid, yes. Our, and then for Wednesday, we have Arthur, author, theologian, ordained minister, and anti-poverty activist, Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris about her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Also coming up later this week, a word from our sponsor, and as we are completely listener-supported, uh, our sponsor is you, and we'll share what you have been telling us via email and Facebook and Twitter. We'll share this week in Rotten History. We will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live again every Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. We will hear another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll wrap up this week the way we do every week by announcing the winner of this week's question from Mal. And, then uh, you know, uh, the person who does win will win their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. Again, you can check out all of our stuff by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing today. Thank you, Richard. Special thanks to our guest, 
Elias Nawandish, who was the author of the article, The Intercept. I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. Happy Indigenous Peoples Day, everybody, and congratulations to producer Sebastian Vupper, who will be off for the next uh, three weeks as he prepares for his upcoming wedding celebration, celebrates with family and friends, and will then be enjoying his honeymoon. So congratulations to Seb and Chloe. And if it's Saturday morning right now and you're listening to this, and my girlfriend is right now listening to this, happy anniversary. I love you more than ever. This is not the media. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>